Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Given that the holiday season is ironically when happiness and well-being are often at their lowest and anxiety is at its highest, I thought that it might be helpful to share with you five of my favorite podcast episodes with some of the world's foremost experts who can help you stay healthy, happy, and most importantly, stay sane through this holiday season. During the next five weeks, you're going to learn about the importance of movement, how it affects your creativity, and how to sneak it into your crazy day, even with minimal time. You're going to learn about the practice of intuitive eating so that you can still enjoy all the holiday food, but without the guilt. You're going to learn how to use mindfulness to keep calm amidst the holiday chaos. And finally, how you can maintain your sanity by improving the quality of your sleep. I'm also very excited to announce our brand new partnership with the Core 360 Active Chair, or what I call the Topo Mat of Desk Chairs. Just in time for the holiday season, the Core 360 is the perfect stocking stuffer for those of us who spend most of our day living in front of computers. Now be warned, you're probably also going to need to buy a much bigger stocking. Now to learn more about the Core 360 and how its simple but effective design can keep you more focused, more balanced, and more creative while sitting at your workstation, check out my interview with Core 360 founder Dr. Turner Osler at optimizeyourself.me slash episode 239. All right, without further ado, here's the final part of this five-interview series with Dr. Azure Grant, who's a sleep and hormone researcher who loves to geek out on sleep and all things energy biohacking and tracking. If you're looking to better understand your energy rhythms throughout the day and how they affect your creativity, the quality of your sleep, and of course your well-being, I have no doubt you're going to be just as fascinated by this conversation as I was. You can find the original show notes for this interview at optimizeyourself.me slash episode 189. 
I am here today with Dr. Azure Grant. She is a researcher in metabolic and hormonal health. Uh, you are a big fan of self-tracking. You are a postdoctoral researcher at Helen Wills Neuro Institute at the UC Berkeley. You are a scientist in residence at the company Crescent Health, which we'll talk a little bit more later on. More importantly, and most importantly, according to your Twitter bio, you run, cook, and play with data. So Azure, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very happy to be here. So as uh, as we were talking about a little bit uh, before uh, before we we officially got on the record, you and I are time nerds, and I don't even know if that's a thing. But we were talking a little bit more about what topics of conversation are really going to be the most relevant to our audience today. And I was saying that I really think it's important for any creative professional, especially in a high performance field like Hollywood or similar industries. If you don't understand how to both maximize sleep, but also maximize the other hours in your day. So you understand how do I best use all 24 hours? You first of all need to understand the importance of sleep, which seems so basic and stupid, but I think we're at least going to need to cover the basics of why should you not only get four hours of sleep and I chronically, but then more importantly, I really want people to understand both how circadian rhythms work, which some people have heard of and know the basics, but then there's this thing called ultradian rhythms. And as soon as I mentioned that, your face just totally lit up like we were going to talk about Santa Claus and Christmas, which means that we, you and I are going to be a good combination because it was only in, it wasn't until I discovered the concept of an ultradian rhythm that I totally unlocked the capacity for creative problem solving and creative idea generating because it wasn't just, well, I'm getting enough sleep, but I'm just kind of bumbling about the day and on the hamster wheel. I really learned what an ultradian rhythm was and what my chronotype was. So we're going to nerd out on all of the following. But the first question I have for you is going to be a very interesting and one that's a little bit off the beaten path. And I'm going to address what's kind of an elephant in the room for anybody watching this, which is that you seem to be very young and vibrant for somebody that has discovered the importance of sleep. Usually it isn't until you're in your mid 40s and crotchety and exhausted and living off of caffeine that you're like, maybe I should start focusing on sleep. And for some reason, you decided to make this your passion at a very early age. And I'm wondering why. Well, first, that's very kind of you. And you've probably seen my face uh, lighting up in the background as you say all of these things that we're going to talk about, because I think it sounds very fun. But um, I guess the first thing is maybe I feel old and crotchety on the inside already. Um, but I I went to UC Berkeley originally wanting to go into pre-med uh, like so many people. Um, grew up in a family that had a, a lot of nurses in it, uh, in particular my grandma, um, and loved medicine and biology and everything kind of squelchy and, um, and organic. And I saw that all the people that I was studying with um, would almost compete to sleep as little as possible, work as hard as possible, that the residents that I knew, um, they would completed their medical training and, and moved on and were working at very prestigious places, um, were exhausted and uh, being overworked. And then that the spouses, a lot, a lot of my professors were medical professionals and that they were chronically sleep deprived. And it seemed really sad that the people who were dedicating their life to promotion of health and, and caring for others were, uh, at least in this country, forced to not care for themselves in the process. And I, I really didn't want to do that. I felt like there must be a way where a person that wants to care for others can show that they're able to do that in part by trying to take good care of themselves. And um, I definitely don't always 
succeed in that way. I was just talking to um, Lauren, the head coach at, at Crescent Health today about how I feel like I'm finally getting back to sleeping enough when I haven't been for a little while. So I, I don't think it's a complete success story. I don't sleep well and, um, you know, do healthy habits all the time, but I do try just because I, I see how much this impacts everyone around us, even the, the people that care the most about it. One thing that I can say from my own experience, similar to what you just mentioned, where you're somebody that's supposed to be quote unquote, a sleep expert, but I'm not necessarily getting eight hours of sleep and I have unhealthy habits too. Um, that's very much a position that uh, I'm in. Even like right now, I spent years and years helping creative professionals learn how to both manage and avoid burnout. And I've just been going through a period of fairly intense burnout myself. And there's a part of me, especially earlier in my career, where I thought, well, how dare I? Like, I'm, I'm such a hypocrite. And I'm like, like, I'm supposed to have it all figured out. And then I realized that the people that I really like to work with and learn from are not necessarily just the experts and their towers that have all the information. It's ultimately the ones that can empathize. And I would guess it's a lot easier for you to empathize with somebody that struggles with sleep if you struggled yourself in the past or the present. Yeah. I mean, I, I think most people, when you talk to them, are not trying to pretend like they have perfect habits. And there's that old cliche about, you know, you study the thing that you have the most trouble with. So I think that was definitely a part of me going into sleep and biological rhythms. I thought they were very beautiful and, and elegant from like a, a technical standpoint, very interesting as scientific questions. Um, but they're also like what underlies your lived experience every single day. And sleep was one that uh, maybe I'm just like overly sensitive here, but I really don't do well when I don't sleep enough. And so um, I think I'll probably always struggle to uh, have healthier habits than I, than I could, or that maybe I could get away with if I were someone who is more robust against sleep loss, but. Yeah, I, I can relate to all of that. And I actually did uh, genetic testing through 23andMe and did like all the, the like DNA breakdown and everything to really understand what is my genetic code. Cool. And without going into too many of the details of which I did extensively with somebody named Dr. Ben Lynch, where we actually broke down all the pathways and genetics and everything. The short version is that the, the and I, you can go into this a lot more because you're the scientist and the doctor and I'm not. Uh, but the short version is that I just was not detoxifying and recovering during the night the way that most other people do. I'm very inefficient with my sleep. So most people can get six, seven, even eight hours and they wake up and they feel great. I get six or seven hours and I'm completely useless. And I found out that that was genetically because the way that I'm wired. And it sounds like you're in a similar position where you just need more sleep than other people might need. It really helps to see it. It's neat that um, you, it sounds like you in some way felt better or more accepting of this after you got your 23 and me results back. Um, I kind of had a, a similar experience where at one point in undergraduate, I was lucky enough to have a PI that didn't mind if I like bought extra assays and spit in a tube and um, kind of like made a little bit of a, a sleep lab in the psych building. And I would um, I would go there every once in a while and I would try to do a, a sleep experiment where I would put on all the wearables and the lab devices we had. Um, I would get a really good night of sleep. And then the next day I would wake myself up either every couple of hours throughout the night or at four in the morning. Um, and then once I could take all of that information about my heart rate, about my EEG and sleep stages, about my stomach activity and blood glucose, um, some other hormones back to the lab, I could see directly that when I didn't sleep enough, um, it just looked like 
chaos. And when I slept really well, all of these um, different biometrics just nicely oscillated together across sleep stages. Um, and they looked very orderly. And that um, I, I found it very convincing to say, okay, like I, I know that it's not just me hurting some subjective sense of self that I have. I see in front of me these numbers that like that, that individual looks like they're hurting and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into all the, the basic science and the technical stuff very, very soon, but there's something you just brought up that I think is so important is that you saying, and both of us going through the experience of seeing the data and realizing, oh, this actually makes a difference when it comes to something like sleep, sleep, and just kind of overwork in general and this burnout culture that we have specifically in America. I'm not saying it's not other places, but boy, have we really perfected the burnout work culture. It's so esoteric that we just think, well, if I need more sleep or I'm not recovering or I can't put in the 20 hour days, like I'm sure you saw in the pre-med field, it's a sign of weakness, right? But if I have the data that says that my body doesn't produce insulin and I'm type one diabetic, nobody says, well, I need less insulin than you do, right? It's just, it would be asinine to think that. But when it comes to things like sleep, we think that it's a badge of honor that I can get less than you and still function, except you're really not functioning. So just that, that cultural belief, I think, number one, let's just get rid of that and let's just get down to all the data and the information. And it sounds like uh, in the, the very early world of pre-med, you decided, yeah, this is not so much going to be my life. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and I think it also has to do with, uh, with being nice to yourself. Um, I guess like there's a way to compete against others by pushing yourself to the limit, um, even beyond what's healthy. And then, um, I think it can be a little bit helpful to go back and say like, you know, what would I recommend like for my pet or what would I recommend for, you know, my, my niece or my nephew, um, to do. And if you treat yourself like that, it's often a lot easier to be nice and a little bit lenient. Yeah. It's funny how that works, isn't it? Where oftentimes our own worst enemy is the one that's between our ears. Right. Uh, so I have a multitude, several hours worth of podcasts with other sleep experts where we are just beating a dead horse about why not sleeping is bad for you. And I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole, but just to kind of tee us off. Somebody comes to you that's never learned anything about sleep other than I know I need it every night. Why do I need sleep? Give me like the, the, the very brief version to tee us off to get into some of the, the nitty gritty details. What can I say that others haven't said before? Well, um, you live on the earth. And the earth rotates uh, around its axis once every 24 hours. And that means that every living thing on the earth, pretty much, um, unless you're at the bottom of the ocean, uh, is going to be um, tied to the energetic changes across the day. And so that cycle is, is built into almost every cell of your body, every system. Um, and you will live much better, be happier, live longer um, if you stay in tune with that uh, natural rhythm that, that you can't really escape because it's, uh, it's been evolved into every single part of you. Now, my understanding is that rhythm actually has a name, doesn't it? What, what, is, what is that rhythm called? What is that called? About today, it's called our, our circadian system, our circadian rhythmicity. Um, and so that being baked into every one of our cells is, is actually all the way down to um, a molecular clocks that live in our different cells that are coordinated by, uh, it's called the master like organizing clock, um, sits at the bottom of our brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN. Um, and that means that we have systems in our body constantly talking to each other saying, what time is it right now? 
is it my time to do my thing or is it my time to pull back and let another system shine? Um, and when we sleep, um, we allow all of these systems to shine and do consolidation of memories, clean up, um, making sure that we can learn properly, digest. Um, it's actually a very active process. So it's not really us just powering down and um, being totally boring and useless for a third of our life. Um, we're actually doing a lot of really important stuff um, for ourselves during that, that period of time. So what are at least a couple of those most important processes that if I'm not getting them, I'm noticing when I'm awake. So if I'm asleep and I don't get enough sleep or it's bad quality sleep or I'm drinking before I go to bed, et cetera, et cetera, what is, what are the processes that I'm missing that are going to affect me while I'm awake? Um, it would be hard to name a, a process in your body that wasn't negatively impacted by sleep loss, but um, I think ones that are super salient are, you can think of it like taking the garbage out in your brain at night. So we have dilation of, of a lot of the channels in our brains that uh, allow cleanup crews to come in, um, pick up metabolic waste, um, do what's called pruning of, um, of neuronal structures that aren't needed, do growth of ones that are needed, do memory consolidation. And all of that has to happen um, in a very particular order in order for it to work properly. So you can think of if, um, if there's a traffic backup on one of those roads, uh, then the cleanup crew can't get in and do its job. And so um, when we sleep and have stable sleep cycles, so um, these are little sub or ultradian rhythms within a night of sleep that we can only get really, really well structured when we sleep in an uninterrupted way, um, preferably at night. Um, that's when we get that, that cleanup crew doing its thing in the right order. And, um, and when we, you know, realize the next morning that we can actually remember what we learned before we went to bed and, and, uh, lose that feeling of grogginess. All right. I definitely, definitely want to get to ultradian rhythms in crazy intense detail, but I'm going to put a pin in it because that's going to be the star of the show. But I want to ease into it because it might be the the coolest concept that anybody, what I would love, just like if you watch a great movie for the first time and you can never watch it again for the first time and you want to like erase your memory and experience it again. That's kind of how I feel about my discovery of ultradian rhythms. I wish that I could go back to when I didn't know what the term was and learn about it, have that aha moment. And I'm hoping to give everybody on this call today that same aha moment, but we're not quite there yet. So I want to go back to circadian rhythms. For most people, circadian rhythm is a term that they've heard and they use it in the following context. Oh, yeah, no, I, I flew, uh, flew out east and came back west and my circadian rhythms are all screwed up. That's kind of the extent of it. But I want to make sure that people really understand how these 24-hour clocks inside them are working. And it's not just about, well, you know, it's, it's sunny or it's not sunny. So why is it so important that I understand my circadian rhythm? Yeah, um, because your circadian rhythms, A, are necessary uh, to maintain health across all of your life. Um, there's something that when you disrupt them, uh, it leads to poor metabolic, cardiovascular cognitive outcomes um, on a very short period of time. And then if you if you chronically disrupt them, um, you're much more likely to develop all of those diseases. Um, but uh, on maybe a more intuitive level, it's something that you can schedule your life around um, to, to feel much better. So for instance, you can think of them as like waves on a calm ocean. So when we were growing up, maybe most of us kind of thought that um, we wanted to aim for stability in terms of a flat line. And that could be maybe our, our exercise performance was either staying steady or going up, or we were able to um, 
be highly focused and creative all day long would be the goal. And we'd, you know, be drinking coffee and um, kind of like slapping ourselves awake in order to be able to do so. But that's really not how our bodies are wired because we have circadian or daily rhythms in pretty much every system, including our, our dopamine, our, our motivation, our blood glucose, our cortisol, stress and arousal hormone, um, our digestion, uh, our serotonin, all of these things. We have to adopt this new framework where we can't expect ourselves to be um, a line. We have to expect ourselves to be a wave every single day. And so the reason you should should care about circadian rhythms is if, if you don't, you'll be constantly fighting yourself, trying to um, be a kind of creature that um, that doesn't really exist. Um, and you don't need that added pressure. And it, it turns out that even though um, by paying attention to your circadian and other biological rhythms, you might feel in the short time, like you're being less productive. Um, in the long term, you'll actually be much healthier and, and do better creative work. And I'm assuming this is why when somebody does fly uh, three, four, five, six hours across different time zones, or they decide to work a night shift, which is probably a much more common thing for anybody that's listening to this show specifically. They just change that rhythm. Even if they're getting seven to eight hours of sleep, they cannot figure out why they're just quote unquote off. Like I just feel off. So I'm assuming that's circadian rhythm, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and that one, when you have a, a really abrupt change in the time that you're doing something, so if you switch from a day shift to a night shift or you take a plane across the ocean, um, what's happening is that all of the different systems in your body, so think your hormones, your metabolism, uh, your cognition, they're all trying to catch up to the new time zone because what they're seeing in the outside world is it's light at a different time. Like my clocks must be wrong and I must be, uh, must reset them to the new time and food is available at a different time. I need to reset my stomach to a different time. Um, but the issue is that those clocks can't all adjust to the new time at the same rate. So you end up with, uh, that, SCN, that main clock in your brain that gets direct input from the light coming into your eyes, making this fairly rapid adjustment, but all these other systems in your body that are a little farther away being kind of slow to get the message. Um, and when those things are, are being slow to catch up to the new time zone and they're all doing it at a different rate, I think of it as if you have an orchestra um, where all of the players have suddenly gotten discombobulated from one another. Some are playing a little slower, some are playing a little faster, and all of a sudden the song doesn't make sense. I love that analogy. I was just in my mind trying to think, what's the best analogy visually to explain this? And you nailed it. The <laughs> fact that it would be an orchestra where essentially each of them is in their own soundproof room and they can't see the conductor. And they think they're all starting to play at the same time, but one started three seconds later, one started a minute later. And to them, the part that they're playing sounds right. And somebody on the outside is like, what is this gibberish mess of noise? There's no consistency to it or rhythm whatsoever. Totally. I mean, you can imagine even like the conductor, like running around to each one of these rooms, knocking on the door, or that each one of them is kind of like getting a call from him with the metronome that's like playing at a slightly different rate, or there's like some static in the signal. And so they're all kind of trying, they've got a sense that something's wrong and they're trying to listen, but, um, 
but yeah, there's just, there's no 100% perfect way to synchronize everything immediately. Um, I mean, people can generally catch up about an hour a day to a new time zone, but, but anything more than that, um, and you're going to feel it. Well, it's a good thing that caffeine fixes the rest of it then, right? Caffeine doesn't have any adverse effects and it's the perfect fix for uh, circadian rhythm problems. I bet you've talked about this a lot. Uh, caffeine can be great in the right dose and the right timing, like everything else. Um, but because the, the half-life of caffeine um, is pretty long. It's it's very variable based on individual and tolerance and you know time of day itself. But if you think of it as about eight hours, if you have a you know if I drank a cup of coffee right before this um, four p.m. my time call, uh, I would definitely have have trouble falling asleep later tonight at um, at ten or eleven. And that's because the the caffeine is blocking those adenosine receptors that help you feel sleepy. Um, and then you're more likely to do all these other activities that are, are going to keep you up as well, like eating later or looking at bright lights and, and all these things. So coffee's great, but um, I think everybody has to figure out their own uh, shifting tolerance and timing that will allow them to then fall asleep at the end of the day. Yeah. The, the couple of things that I wanted to say about caffeine, you covered one already, which is the idea of the adenosine receptors. And the big aha moment for me for coffee was realizing that coffee doesn't make me feel more awake. It just doesn't let me know how sleepy I really am. That was a huge moment for me. Like I actually thought I had more energy. It's like, no, your brain is just tricking itself. It thinks it has more energy. You're just as sleepy and exhausted as you were before. You just kind of don't know it. And I'm lying to you right now. Yeah. And you can kind of even feel it once you know that, um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe some of the tiredness behind your, behind your eyes goes away, or maybe you feel like the the jittery sense of um, alertness, but that that doesn't come with that sense of clarity of when you really had proper rest. Yeah, and the other thing that I discovered about myself, similar to the knowing uh, my genetic makeup and the fact that I wasn't as efficient with my sleep, I also learned that I'm horrible at metabolizing caffeine. I metabolize it very slowly. So for example, I have a friend of mine that I do uh, Spartan training with and Ninja Warrior with, and he'll oh. pound 300 milligrams of caffeine in an energy drink at 9 p.m. and sleep like a baby. If mm. I have one cup of coffee at 11 a.m., I am up all night. I'm like, well, how could that be possible? And it's because I realized I just don't metabolize caffeine and it's in my system forever, which for me, I have to be very, very careful. Otherwise, I think I'm awake all the time. And then all of a sudden I just massively crash. I'm like, oh yeah, right. I'm actually exhausted and I just didn't notice it. That's so valuable to learn because especially when, um, you know, you're, you're more sensitive than maybe you're trained to think that you ought to be, then uh, you can have sleep problems for a long time and, and not identify the, the source. And we actually see this pretty often um, where people will, you know, be convinced by a coach that they should either really restrict uh, their caffeine to the morning or massively cut back or even go cold turkey. And yeah, like those headaches hurt for a, a few days um, or it's, it's such like a part of our ritual of feeling good about waking up that we really don't want to give it up, but it, um, it helps a lot of people, uh, be able to fall asleep. And, you know, it's one of those surprisingly simple answers. Yeah. Another thing that I've noticed too, and we can maybe get into this a little bit later when we do, uh, I'm going to basically try and uh, steal myself a free coaching session at the end of this call. Um, <laughs> but you know, of course, for the, the sake of helping you guys promote your services, one thing I've noticed is that if I drink coffee at all, that I still get a full night's sleep, but I wake up in the middle of it. If I don't drink coffee, I usually go the full night without at least consciously waking up. 
If I drink the coffee, I consciously wake up for anywhere between 15 to 30 minutes. But if you were to look at the sleep rhythms on my aura ring, which again, we're going to get into later, you're not going to notice much difference. The difference is I know when I wake up when I have the coffee. I don't know when I wake up when I don't have the coffee. And I've, I've never been able to figure that out. So I don't know if that's like a thing or if that's, I don't know. That's really interesting. Does your, um, does your ring or, you know, anyone else still tell you that you've woken up or are you really sleeping all the way through the night without the coffee? According to me, according to my own memories, I would wake up in the morning and say, Ooh, I slept through the whole night. But then I'll see a very similar spike where it says I'm either awake or I'm in light sleep as opposed to REM or deep sleep. And like, but I thought I slept through the whole night. So the, 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 uh, the map doesn't look that much different, but if I have coffee, I usually am conscious of the fact that I woke, woke up during the night. And sometimes it's as much as like an hour. Usually it's only a few minutes. Um, but I've just, I've kind of noticed that it's very anecdotal. I don't have charts or graphs where I've mapped all of it out and maybe I should have. Um, but just anecdotally, I've noticed that pattern. Gotcha. No, that's really interesting. I mean, maybe it's just bringing you that much closer to the threshold of wake where you tend to get pushed over it and, um, and enough that you're awake a and B have a memory of being awake as opposed to maybe you're just tossing and turning, um, Mm -hmm. a little more. And you know, that, that could have to do with a lot of things It could have to do with, um, boosting your, your cortisol up just a little tiny bit, especially if you're really, um, really sensitive and then not getting that, that full crash at night that would, um, knock you out harder. Yeah. Yeah. And cortisol is a whole other subject. And I've had my cortisol mapped and, um, I had a doctor tell me at one point, they're like, you have no cortisol when you wake up. It's like as close to zero as possible. And I'm like, is that why I can't function when I wake up? Cause everybody thinks cortisol is a bad thing. Oh, it's the stress hormone. Don't have cortisol, but you need it to function. And for me, my cortisol chart is almost the inverse of what it should be. So in the mornings, almost none in the evenings, like I've can, you know, do all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's when I find that I do my best exercise and my best creative work. Um, but if you're trying to go with the rhythm of the rest of the world, that can be a little frustrating, which actually brings me to the next topic of conversation, which is one that I have not talked about on the show yet, but I love talking about and reading about. It's chronotypes. Most people have no idea what a chronotype is, and I want to make sure this audience knows what a chronotype is because there's so much stigma around being an early bird versus being a night owl, and I want to eliminate that stigma. So talk to me about what a chronotype is. Absolutely. Well, I think what you said actually means that people do have a little bit of a sense of what a chronotype is. So, you know, most of us have heard of um, being a morning lark, like the person who just wakes up and is chipper at 5 a.m. Uh, my it's very wife. frustrating. Not me. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and of the night owl, the person who, um, you know, is is pretty ready to go at like 11 p.m. to 3 a.m., maybe does the great work then. Um, and then most people who fall somewhere in between. And uh, chronotype is a really interesting idea because uh, it seems to be in part biologically driven um, and then to also interact really strongly with what we're exposed to in our environment. So the kind of basic concept is that those uh, clocks in our brain and in each of our cells, um, they don't run on exactly 24 hours on the mark. I mean, they're like squishy, like everything in biology. So they're approximate, but not perfect. Um, And when people's clocks run a little bit faster than 24 hours, you can imagine they finish their cycle and it's time to wake up and it's early. And so um, those people tend to be morning people get up a little bit earlier. And the reason that they don't get up earlier and earlier 
earlier every day, like processing all the way around is because um, there are bodies listening to the cues from the outside world, like sunlight. And so they, they get a little bit more aligned every day, um, but they still have this early tendency. And then a night owl is the, the opposite. Their clocks run a little bit longer than 24 hours, meaning that every day when they get up, they're not quite done with that cycle and they want to you know, sleep a little more just to get it finished up. Um, and so they're looking at the sun outside and adjusting kind of in the, the opposite direction. So that's like one of the, the biological bases. And, um, and most of us probably have an intuitive sense of where we lie along that axis. Um, but there are a couple other interesting added layers about chronotypes that I think are, are really like fun and salient. And one of them is that they, they change really markedly across life. So um, you have kids, you probably woke up earlier because of your kids. Uh, kids tend to be more morning people. Um, when you hit puberty, your clock's delay and um, tend to become more of a night owl um, that often lasts into college. And then there's this stabilization of kind of gradually getting earlier, very slowly across adulthood. Um, and then after menopause and, and andropause, I think um, 50s, 60s and beyond, people tend to become early again. So um, it's not something that's fully static. And then the, the last thing I would say about it is there's an idea that one of the things that might make night people night people is not just that their clocks run a little longer than 24 hours, but also that they're um, a little bit more sensitive to light. So that means when um, a night owl sees a movie on a bright screen, um, is you know, doing photo editing, like goes to a restaurant for a late dinner, um, they're going to be more kept up by that than a morning person would. Kind of like your, your friend who is able to like pound a 300 milligram uh, caffeine drink in the evening and then knock right out. They're not very sensitive, whereas you are more caffeine sensitive. Um, so light sensitivity might also play uh, a role in chronotype. Yeah. And when it comes to light sensitivity, I feel like I'm a vampire at night, but not with sun or garlic. It's like with, oh God, get away. It's the television, the <laughs> iPad. Like I've had more than one discussion with my wife about just the phone in bed. No sensitivity to it whatsoever with her. With me, I see the phone for three seconds. There goes my night of sleep right it's like so i've been like the the geek with the red glasses and all the filters and done everything i possibly can to uh, not eliminate but reduce my exposure to light in the evening but my entire industry my entire livelihood is looking at screens i get paid very good money to look at screens all day and all evening long to create entertainment so i can't avoid them so i just have to learn to live with them right but i i've identified similar to uh, caffeine like we talked about light is something i'm very sensitive to and I don't know if it's related or not, but whenever I go outside and maybe again, it's just kind of the, the joke of, you know, the editor that never has windows. But when I go outside, a lot of times I need really dark sunglasses. Otherwise I literally get headaches and I'm squinting and I just, I hate being out in bright light and I'm super, super sensitive to it. And I didn't realize until now that might be connected to my chronotype. That's a super good insight. Yeah, I, I encourage other people to think about that too, because I've I've heard stories similar to this. I've experienced some similar things myself as well. But um, I think the, the light sensitivity is is totally real and it's not normally a trait that we think about ourselves having. And 
I would be curious to know for you, but like one of the ways that this has been studied is to take people camping. And it turns out if you, if you take even a, like a, a night owl out camping for a, a handful of days, you expose them to natural light and firelight, um, you know, phone off, then they actually pretty quickly adapt to waking up with the sun, uh, going to bed after maybe an, an hour or two of firelight and they do okay. So it, it, you know, does seem like there's this really strong effect of, um, if you allow yourself to entrain to those natural stimuli, then you can be on that earlier schedule if you want. But the, the sensitivity to light is maybe a factor that wouldn't have come up so much before we had artificial lighting. And, um, and now we really notice it. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo Driven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life. They're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Well, that's the perfect segue to my next question. And you answered it partially, and I want to go a little bit deeper into it, which is that you said the chronotype is a combination of biology and genetics and environment. And a question I get all the time from the students in my program when they're having trouble sleeping or they know that they're super productive at like 11 p.m. to 3 a.m., but they have kids or whatever it is, they say, how do I change my chronotype? I'm a night owl. How do I become an early bird? And I know that's probably one of the million dollar questions in your industry. Is it totally genetically wired or is there a way to slowly change it beyond just the gradual rhythm changes over the course of life? So I think this one is probably a, a little bit controversial, but um, I think most people would say you can adapt to a chronotype that is different than your own, but unless you're going out and living 
completely with the with the natural cycle of the day and night and the seasons, which would probably be optimal for everyone. Um, and most of us can't do. So unless you're doing that, uh, you'll probably have slightly suboptimal to really suboptimal health um, if you're trying to live on a chronotype that's different than yours. Um, what you can do is uh, is wait um, because it is going to change depending on how old you are. Um, and you can try to, to do as much natural entrainment as you can. But I think this is one of those frustrating things where it would be really nice if we could change this about ourselves. But um, just as if you can uh, build up that caffeine tolerance by having coffee on a regular basis, you're still going to experience some of those downsides of the fact that you have this natural sensitivity. And it's it's really the same thing with chronotype. So I think what I try to encourage as much as possible for people um, is to A, like, except that it, it might never be perfect and, and that's okay. And if you love what you're doing and it's not at the complete optimal time for you, the fact that you get to do what you love doing probably outweighs the fact that you're muscling with your rhythms a little bit, but as much as you can, it's good to find a compromise between being able to do what you love when you need to do it and uh, recognizing that if you organize that a little bit around when your body naturally wants to do its thing, you'll you'll probably be better across the board. I love this idea of to get optimal health. We really need to balance ourselves with essentially the natural rhythms of the day and the season. So I think my policy going forwards is that essentially from late October until early spring, I'm just going to be done by four. And when my bosses say, why, I'm going to say, well, what do you mean? Why? Because that's when the sun sets. I'm sure they'll be okay with that, right? Like modern society should have no problem with that new rhythm. How could they not be? Maybe someday, maybe in the, uh, you know, maybe in, in the far north before it happens over here. Yeah. So I, when it comes to my own experiments with chronotype and trying to, I, I don't know if it's the right term or not, and you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but trying to like shift my own circadian rhythm or chronotype. So I'm a little bit closer to the morning side than the evening side, just to function in society as both a parent and somebody that you know, works for companies for a living. It's just not acceptable to say, eh, I really don't like to get up before 11. If you're a freelancer on your own with no family and you kind of do your own thing on your own time, that's totally fine. For me, I've never been able to develop a lifestyle whereby nobody's counting on me until that point, especially since I'm a dad. So that was when it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I've got to figure this out because until I had kids, I basically was useless all day. And then like clockwork about 8 PM, boom, my brain turned on and I was editing like the, like lightning until 12 or 1 AM. And I got an entire day's work done in like four or five hours. The rest of the day, it was naps and it was email and it was chit chat, like, cause I just couldn't function to be creative. Then as soon as I had kids, that didn't work. And I had to start to figure out how do I shift these rhythms so I'm not completely and totally useless in the mornings, which for the most part, I still am. And anybody that's listening to this has known me for a long time that thinks I'm lying, ask my wife. Before 8 a.m., don't talk to me. Don't ask me questions. Don't ask my brain to process anything. She's learned if she asks, like, because uh, we have a, a puppy now, so I have to wake up with a puppy when they leave. And she'll say, well, we need to do this today, or can you do that or the other thing? And then when she gets home, hey, did you do these things? Do what now? She's like, oh, yeah, I asked you at uh, 6.15 and just doesn't even register. It's not even there at all. But I've gotten closer to the point where I can, for the most part, function with the level of energy that I have now by about 8 a.m., which would have been impossible a decade ago. But the point being that it was when I discovered, even though I have a fairly limited of time where my brain is on, once I discovered ultradian rhythms, I started to get way more out of my day. So now we get to the meat of the conversation. What the heck is an ultradian rhythm. 
It's something with a very strange name that uh, that might use renaming at some point. It's basically a rhythm that happens multiple times within a day. And it's probably something that, you know, when I give you some examples, you'll go, oh yeah, of course I know that. It's um, getting hungry a few times a day. I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, happened for, for a reason. That's a very common um, number of peaks to have within the day and blood glucose and insulin, triglycerides, uh, even coupled with cortisol and motivation. So there, there are things that happen uh, on several cycles per day. And while I think most of us think of these as totally volitional, like, oh, you know, I got hungry because I, I needed food and I wanted something, or I, I wanted to get up and go have a walk, or I, I wanted to work on this. They seem to also be controlled by clock systems in some ways, uh, similar to the circadian system. So this is something that's still being figured out, uh, but there's some pretty good evidence that a part of the brain that's very close to the central clock of the SCN. It's called the arcuate, helps generate a lot of these ultradian within a day rhythms via a, it's called like a, a pulsatile clock mechanism. Um, and there's also uh, some work suggesting that one of the key motivational parts of our brain um, is making these ultradian dopamine rhythms every few hours and that those are, are talking to other brain regions and keeping them on an every few hour clock too. And I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. So if you, if you have the opportunity to measure something about yourself, whether it's subjective. So you keeping track of, if you're a writer, like how many words you're typing per minute all day long, um, when you feel you're most energetic and like you're able to do good work, even, um, when you feel hungry versus not, or if you're, if you're measuring something like your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your temperature, your glucose, you'll see that, um, it's not only this one circadian wave where it goes up during part of the day and then smoothly down for the rest of it, you'll see it's jaggy. And that jagginess isn't just noise or, or randomness. It's, it's very structured. It's these ultradian rhythms bouncing up and down every day. And so um, I'm wondering if one of the things that you learned to do um, when you learned about this concept was to find your ultradian peaks throughout the day of energy and then plan stuff that you need to get done um, around matching to those peaks. Yeah, not only is it that, I mean, the, the key that I learned, and this was that huge aha moment, is that time management has nothing to do with managing time, it's about managing energy. And as soon as I heard that, that's when my entire world opened because I don't have any more time in my day than you or anybody else listening or anyone else on the planet. It is the one equalizer. When there are so many other things that make us different, a lot of things that we cannot change, but we all have 24 hours. And most people that don't have butlers and millions of dollars that actually have to work for a living and survive and support themselves and or their family, they've got about 12-ish hours per day where they're in work mode. And then they have 12-ish hours per day where they're trying to fit in family and life and other things and hopefully sleep as well, right? But I realized that once I turned time management into energy management and I mapped my energy and my ultradian rhythms, that I could get way more out of those 12 hours than a lot of other people are getting out of those 12 hours. So that was the big aha moment for me. But the other thing that I realized, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe this is anecdotal and it's not scientific, but I found it was way easier to change and manipulate my ultradian rhythms versus my circadian rhythms. I think you're right. Um, and this is actually something that's an, an active area of research and what I think is super fascinating because uh, if we're kind of stuck with our circadian rhythms, we're kind of stuck with our chronotype, um, Ultradian rhythms, maybe in part because uh, they may be generated by this 
part of our brain that is primarily our, our motivational sensor, when we're able to, you know, have some sense of control over when we feel motivated to do something different, we might be actually changing the, the phase of our ultradian rhythm. So uh, phase is one of these things I thought you might say, which is basically your position um, along that curve going up and down throughout the day. But absolutely, I think they have um, they have a little bit more intuitiveness to them because we have a little bit more control over them. So I talked about the ones that in dopamine, but um, but cortisol is another great example of this. And like you said, it's not just cortisol bad; we should drive it to zero. Um, cortisol isn't just a, a stress bad response; it's also a, a stress good response, or you can call it an, an arousal and a weakness hormone. Um, and cortisol is is one of the key examples of these ultradian rhythms because it has giant spikes throughout the day, um, and they're, they're healthy. They happen every couple of hours about, um, but they also vary from person to person. So if you want to be a person who maybe has five or six of these spikes throughout the day versus seven or eight, that might be something that you have a little bit of control over. It's actually a, a topic I would love to study. And um, I think there's a needs to be a lot more work in this area. Um, but there are some situations in which we know that uh, the number of those peaks and valleys change in a very predictable way. Um, and people can kind of learn to live in sync with that. Um, and that has more to do with, uh, with ovulatory cycles. Um, but as far as how controllable they are, I, I don't know. I would, um, I would love to find out though. Yeah. I mean, I would love to know scientifically if that's the case, but I know that for me, anecdotally, that I have found that with the changes in my schedule, whether I'm on a job, whether I'm off a job, whether I have clients, if I don't have clients, I'm able to relatively quickly kind of shift around my ultradian rhythm based on what I think is going to be the more productive way to organize my day. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, I know that no matter how I organize ultradian rhythms before 8 a.m., just don't put anything there. Like some days it's until 7.50 a.m. I just can't function. Other days at seven o'clock, I can read for half an hour. Sometimes I can do light exercise, but I just assume that is a wasteland. It just is what it is. And I just learned to accept it and work around it. 8 a.m. comes, there are different states that I can be in as far as my attention and my creativity. So in general, I'm usually on a Zoom call and I'm teaching with my coaching and mentorship students from about 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. But what I have found during like in between semesters and whatnot is that when I have my students during the semester, I can't get any like deep creative work done because I'm on call. So I can't be writing or whatever. And all writers and productivity experts say, eat your frog in the morning and do the most productive thing in the, the beginning of the day. And I don't buy any of that. I'm not saying they're wrong, but it's not for everybody. So what I find is that if I know I have client work from eight to 11, 8 to 11, I'm talking to them. I may be checking some emails, responding to Slack messages. Then I give myself a break. Then I can convert to being in deep work, focused, creative mode in the afternoon. When I don't have clients in the morning, give or take maybe a week or two to transition, I can sit down and I can write 4,000 words between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in deep work just by changing a few habits and triggers in my environment, whereas circadian rhythm, I've tried for years to get it to stick and I can't. And there's a, a quote that I always use and I wanna try and ascribe this quote creatively to the work that you do scientifically, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but I share this with all of my students. It's, I only write when creativity strikes, but creativity happens to strike at 9 a.m. every single morning because it's become a habit. So talk to me a little bit more about the scientific side of all these things I've been experimenting with, with ultradian rhythms. 
Yeah, I I think you're really nicely describing the concept of entrainment, um, which is this idea that our bodies and our our brains are prediction machines. Um, What they do is learn what's happening in our environment and try to make structure out of it and try to learn if they can um, take something from the past and use it to predict accurately what's going to happen in the future. Um, This is one of the reasons that biological clocks are so cool um, is because so many different things can become what's called an an entraining cue. So if you're organizing your life to say um, you want to be able to do something every day at 9 a.m., you're probably putting different cues in your environment that help you get ready to feel in that state that you need to be in to do that work at 9 a.m. And then have you heard the phrase uh, zeitgebers before? I have, yes. If you were to ask me to describe it and define it on the spot, I would flail, but I've definitely heard the term, so remind me what it is and explain it. Sure. So it's um, it's a it's a timing cue. So zeitgeber is German for time giver, um, but these are cues that our biological clocks are especially primed to listen into, and they talk about these as like light, food, movement, and social. So light, we already talked about this a little bit, sunlight uh, goes through your eyes, travels on the retinal hypothalamic tract and, and talks directly to that, that central clock in your, in your brain. Food, when you eat, also is a, a really powerful cue to help set the phase of, of your circadian clock, but also set the phase of your ultradian rhythms throughout the day. Movement, when you get up and, and move around and do stuff, um, is hugely impactful to the, the phase of your circadian and ultradian rhythms, helps define them. And then social is just kind of a, a bucket that I put in for things that are very mentally engaging and uh, you know, one of the most engaging experiences we can have is, is talking to another person and, and really focusing on what they're saying and having a conversation. Um, so zeitgebers are these cues that we can almost like a, a toolkit um, use to organize and support our rhythms to be the way we want them to be um, and to, to bolster them if they're if they're a little bit out of whack. But um, one of the most uh, amazing things is that it doesn't just have to be those four things that are time cues. If you do anything that you really like in a very consistent time of day, um, you might note that your body is able to anticipate it. So whether that's, um, you know, having a particular smell in your environment that tells you, okay, we're like work is coming now or a particular song that you play, um, all of these things your body can learn to pay attention to and almost take timestamps that, um, that it'll remember tomorrow at that same time. Yeah. What I've learned through all of my study, just anecdotally of myself and reading all the books about habit formation and everything else, it all comes down to, we are all Pavlov's dog. We look like we're above the dog with the bell. We are all the dogs with the bell. You just need to figure out what the bells are. And it's funny you brought this up because I had no idea I was actually doing this consciously. But the two things that I play with the most when I go between changes in my schedule that are long term where I'm on a job for six months or a year, then I'm off it and I can totally rearrange my schedule. The two things that I shift are when I eat and when I move. So, for example, when I'm on a show and I have to coach in the morning. I can't just say to them, well, I'm going to start the job at 11, but my lunch break is at 1130 because I've already been going for four hours. So I've had to train myself to not eat lunch until like 2 p.m. So I can get in a full morning just the way that everybody else is. And now I'm eating lunch at like 1130 or 12. But I always make sure that I'm changing when I eat and when I move, meaning when I go out and take a walk or take the dog for a walk, for example, that changes. And those cues are what, like I said, get me to the point where I'm writing when creativity strikes, so to speak. So I had no idea I was actually 
doing the things that I was supposed to, but that's what I've been using for years to really shift my ultradian rhythms. That's so cool. I mean, I, I think this is where there's like a lot of hope in this is um, I think people hear about biological rhythms for the first time and they think, oh God, that sounds complicated. I don't want to deal with it. But it's really kind of just a, a framework in which to explain a lot of the things that we naturally do in our everyday lives and that to help us use those tools a little bit more efficiently. I mean, the, the same analogy that we talked about earlier of your body as a, a symphony um, pertains to ultradian rhythms. Uh, you could just maybe think of, um, you know, the circadian rhythm as your quarter notes and the ultradian rhythms as your eighth and 16th notes of moving a bit faster. And um and the same kind of thing that can happen if you if you use your zeitgebers as like the conductor of those faster rhythms, um, the more consistently you use them like a metronome, the more the players can keep in time on that particular schedule. And if you do want to tell them to, to slow down, well, you provide those cues on a on a slower schedule or at different times of day. And then your body can say, oh, OK, we're going to latch on to this new schedule. We can adapt around that. Yeah, I love all of that. The other thing that I want to bring up that's so important about ultradian rhythms is accepting that I don't have to be quote unquote on all the time. Because in my mind, it was, well, if I'm not actively editing or writing or doing something important, I'm wasting my time. And what I realized is that the brain just isn't capable of being on and being focused for every single waking hour of the day. And it allowed me to accept the downtimes and actually plan them. So an example would be mindlessly sitting and scrolling social media. If somebody had a camera in the, the upper corner of my office and they saw me mindlessly scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, they'd say, what a hypocrite. This guy's supposed to be Mr. Productivity and Time Management. But I can tell you almost, I could almost set my clock to it. I'm going to be doing it right there about 2.30 p.m. Because I know at 2.30, I'm kind of sort of useless. So I would rather use that useless time to do somewhat useless activities that allow my brain to take a break. And then by 3 or 4 p.m., which is no coincidence that you and I are recording around 4 p.m., I know the brain's going to be back turned on. And again, it eliminates some of that guilt or that remorse of like, oh, I'm supposed to be productive or always working or always in front of my desk. Like, no, I just make sure that when I am in front of my desk that I'm actually doing productive things at the right time of day. And that, again, was like the, the huge aha moment for me. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I think the the idea that like resting is productive is a very silly sounding set of phrases, but I think a, a lot of people in like a very hardworking culture need to hear it. Um, I mean, I'm trying right now, and, and a lot of people I work with that struggle with the same thing are trying now to um, accept that when you are on one of those down ultradian uh phases or times of day, it's okay to like even go beyond doing some scrolling and like, go, go sit down and do nothing for 20 minutes. Like it's, it's all right. Or, or longer, or, um, you know, write doodle, um, tidy, just go sit outside and, and stare at a tree. Like, um, that that is something that is a, a short-term investment um, that will probably make you more productive on the next cycle that you need to come in and really focus. Um, and that, that effort of, trying to stay attached and just eke out a little bit more is preventing you from getting that mental sense of detachment that you need for uh, for later on again, when your body will naturally have another cortisol pulse and be more ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's funny you bring up the idea of staring into space because I just had a conversation last week with my wife and my son where he's like, why does daddy stare out the window all the time? 
right? And my wife was like, oh boy, don't ask him. Here it comes. Here it comes. And I said, well, how much do you understand about the brain's default network, my son, and how creativity works? And he's 12. So he's just like, I don't know. I don't know what that is, right? But I was trying to to very clearly but gently explain to him, just because I'm sitting here doing nothing on the couch, staring out into space, it doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. This is where I get my ideas. This is why when you're in the shower or you're taking a walk or you're boiling water, you're like, oh my God, I solved this problem. That's why to me, rest can be so productive, but our culture <laughs> does not like those ideas of, uh, you know, rest and recovery and kind of doing these things because we got to be machines. We've got to be attached to our workstations all the time. Um, but if you can really manage your day more towards your alternating rhythm, as we've discussed now, and I hope have at least given some people that insight or that aha moment, that can really be the key to getting more out of your day without just totally exhausting yourself. But the next area that I want to go, which I think, I hope is going to be one of the big questions people have is, I didn't know any of this. How the heck do I start learning this about myself and how would I track it? So now we get into this world of data gathering and tracking and wearables and dear Lord, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. So let's talk a little bit more about tracking specific to sleep. Sounds good. I, I guess I would first say before getting into all of the devices and, you know, the amount of money and time and complexity you can invest into this is um, I think self-awareness is I, the ultimate goal of self-tracking for me, and um, there are kind of maybe competing camps on this. One says we want to use devices to um, offload the effort that it takes to be self-aware and to have something else pay attention to my heart rate for me or something else to tell me how well I slept so I don't really have to think about it. Another side of the aisle says, actually, I, I want to use this as a tool to help me with my interoception so that I have a better sense of what happened in my body objectively. Um, and that maybe after a while, I won't even need this tool anymore. I'll just kind of have a, an accurate intuitive sense of how I was feeling and an honest intuitive sense of how I was feeling. So I, if it's not kind of obvious, I'm kind of biased towards the, the latter camp that says, um, when you want to start uh, tracking something, or you have a sense that you want to learn something about yourself, the first step of the process is to try to come up with a question about what you want to learn and um, a guess as to what the answer to that question might be. Um, and it doesn't have to be a hypothesis with sub aims and um, something that you could uh, sub, you know, submit to the science fair or write a paper about. It can be as something as simple as, why am I not sleeping well? And like, I think that I, you know, feel really, really awake at like two or 3 a.m. and um, and I'm not able to get to sleep. So um, I think writing out or even just mentally thinking about a few of those questions before you go and try to pick a kind of data to collect or pick a wearable to buy um, can be really helpful in setting up the relationship between you as like a thinking, reasoning person and this as a tool that's going to, to help you learn more about yourself. Ugh, but now I got to do work, really. Like, <laughs> I just want to buy three different wearables and I want it to tell me when to eat. I want to tell it how much am I supposed to eat? What are my macros? How many hours should I be sleeping? How well did I sleep based on the exact number on the HRV? Should I be exercising at 7.30 or 7.47 a.m.? I don't have time to think about all of this. Just do all the work for me. Yeah, I kind of wish. The problem is that um, no one's good enough to tell you 
personal advice that will really work for you. I mean, there are plenty of things that you can buy that will tell you they can perfectly tell you what to do. Um, and maybe they can give you some pretty good suggestions, but um, something that works pretty well for the average of thousands or millions of users or, or nights of sleep uh, often tends to have a pretty high error rate when it comes to how well it mapped you on a given night. Um, and so I don't think we're at the point yet where, you know, people always like make the memes about the robots aren't quite ready to take over the world, but it's totally true. Um, so I think reframing this idea of, um, of learning about yourself as work and seeing it more as like, you know, uh, it could be an art. I mean, I see these things as like art projects, um, or curiosities or, um, or opportunities to, to make your life better. Um, I, I think that's like the, the first part is people think about a science project and they think, oh, this is going to be hard. Um, but it really doesn't have to be that way. Um, and pretty much every part of the process, be that selecting a, a wearable, watching the data roll in, thinking about what it means, um, even if you're not coming to one direct answer and one aha, okay, this is what I need to do now, you'll be in the background becoming smarter and more aware and gaining insights almost subconsciously. So there are ways to you know be as active in that process and learn more if you want to, but, um, but it doesn't have to be scary. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my Topomat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the Topomat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. All right. Well, I love all of that. We're clearly on the same page. I was playing a little bit of the devil's advocate. Um, but essentially, to sum up, tell me if I'm wrong. Step one is to start asking yourself these questions about your behaviors. And the best tracker to start with is a pen and a piece of paper. Yeah. Or just sitting and, you know, using one of those times when you're staring out the window and not thinking about much to uh, to lightly ponder this question. And you can like lightly ponder a question for um, for a long time before you uh, stumble upon or, or think of a tool that you want to help you collect a, a type of information that will help you address that question. This is something that I really love about, um, I don't know if you've heard of the, the quantified self movement. Or, oh, very um, much so, yes. Yeah, so um, Gary Wolf, I was like lucky enough to get to go and work for QS um, right after I graduated 
to college for a while and they have, um, I think an excellent philosophy that they call it personal science. And it's basically applying the scientific method to one's everyday life um, in a very kind of low stress, high reflection, doesn't require you to be a data master, um, but is very, you know, accurate and, and able to lead to good personal insights. So, you know, all the stuff that I'm saying now is, is learned with them. Well, I only wish that I had discovered you and all of that eight years ago, because I got sucked into the hurricane that was the wearables and had the Fitbit and was doing all the tracking with my fitness pal and scanning all the barcodes and everything else. And what I realized, um, realizing very much right now during this call, actually, but also realized back then as well, is that I wasn't using the data, the data was using me. And I wasn't really developing awareness. I was just gathering all this information. And one of the times that I realized that I probably was going down the wrong path and I was also going down the wrong path with multiple other people is that we had set this competition where we were all going to compete to get the most steps during the day because Fitbit had these leaderboards, right? And the average we were all trying to get was around 10,000 or more because that's what they say we're supposed to get. And there were multiple stories in our group of people that would be at like 8,500 or 9,000 steps right before bed. And they're just right in front of their bed doing this. And I'm just like, how stupid were we? It was, <laughs> we thought the 10,000 steps was healthy, not knowing we were completely screwing up our sleep rhythms because we were being really active right before midnight, right before bed, because we had to hit that number. So the data was using us and not the other way around. I only wish I had learned this sooner. <laughs> I mean, I think that's really easy. And I do that across different types of life too. I mean, um, this is part of the whole phones are very captivating thing, but I'll, I'll sit on the couch with like a friend, both doing Duolingo when the other one speaks pretty well, the language that we're doing Duolingo in, and we would probably learn language more efficiently if we would just sit there and try to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very motivating to play the game and to, you know, win the diamond league and all of that. Um, but I, I think the thing that you get at, um, which is the data using you, and then also this idea of tracking fatigue of, oh, I'm putting all this effort in to track these numbers, but I don't really know why I'm doing it. Not really sure what to do with this information. And it's, I feel like I've put in a lot of effort to get this. So, you know, what am I even doing? Um, I think that's part of the reason that starting out with a question um, and then knowing exactly why you're using this tool in this way um, can, can, you know, prevent that, uh, that cycle from happening. Because if you know, for instance, uh, let's like use your coffee example that I, I think like caffeine is negatively impacting my sleep. And I feel like I'm waking up. I'm going to use my aura ring to see, um, you know, for how long am I staying awake in the middle of the night, um, versus, uh, when I don't drink caffeine, you know, does that, am I only getting into light sleep rather than waking up at that middle of the night point? Um, I think having those, the more specific question, um, kind of the more quickly you can get to a yes or no answer and the less likely you're uh, to get sucked in um, to one of these cycles that ends up with you being tired and not quite sure what you learned. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And when it comes to tracking, I do have an aura ring. I swear by the aura ring. I have an entire podcast episode with Chuck Hazard, who's one of the people at Aura. We talk about it extensively, what heart rate variability is. We're not going to go into any of that. But just to summarize, I think it's so important that you're using your intuition first and you want to see if the data supports the intuition, not the other way around. And that's now for the most part, the way that I use the aura ring where it's like, well, I wake up, I just kind of feel like crap today, which by the way is almost every day, but it's different levels of crap with the way that I wake up and been trying yeah. to fix this literally for two decades. And I've just come to accept this is my circadian rhythm and I'm going to work with the ultradian rhythms. Uh, but there are some times that I wake up and I'm like, eh, 
I don't know. Just not feeling it today. Your readiness score is 97 and your HRV <laughs> is 90. I'm like, shit, I got no excuse. <laughs> I should probably go out and do the workout or do whatever. But then there are other days where my HRV is like 43. I'm like, okay, good. It's not just me. There's definitely something going on. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about how we can use something like the Aura Ring very much to our advantage without kind of getting sucked into the, the trap that we already talked about. Yeah, I think when it's nice to you, using that as an opportunity to be nice to yourself is awesome. But I would say for, for the most part, um, it's not just aura, but with many wearables in general, um, the scores aren't yet great for most people. So don't necessarily rely on the scores. Um, I recommend that people scroll down in the app and that they look at the actual trace of the time series data. Um, for the aura data in particular, I think looking and seeing, um, you know, was my heart rate relatively low compared to my average? Was my HRV pretty high? Um, did I see nice, clear sleep cycles in that, uh, in that hopefully roughly, you know, seven to nine hour trace of heart rate and heart rate variability throughout the night. Um, those are the kinds of things that I would use that sleep tracker to look for. But I think, um, I think how you use it really depends on the question that you have about yourself, um, and your background knowledge. So, um, one, kind of the fun thing to do is, is to, to run personal experiments and, and compare particular days. So even something as simple as, um, you know, how much did my sleep duration or my time to fall asleep? Those are things that the, these wearables can measure pretty accurately. How much did that change, um, based on the bedtime routine that I chose to do either, um, you know, taking a walk before bed or not sitting down to, to read for a bit first. I think those kinds of simple interventions are are things that these wearables are, are really good at helping us with. Um, and if you really need it, you can, um, you can go and work with a coach as well and have someone kind of walk you through the data a little bit more. But, um, but I do think a, a lot of the bang for your buck with, uh, with the sleep wearables in particular, kind of the patterns that you notice slowly over time, um, that you, uh, kind of subconsciously process with the, with the questions that you had. Yeah. And I'm very glad you brought up the idea about the score because I, I wasn't going to say anything, but I do feel like it's kind of misleading. I don't remember what it was exactly just for today, but I looked at the I look at the data every morning. It's just become a regular habit. And I'm always really upset when I forget to charge my ring, by the way, just because I'm a completionist. When I have that gap, like one every 37 days, like yeah. I want I want the full data, um, you know, so working on the, that OCD level of wanting all the data. But I'm I kind of, you know, take the the score with a grain of salt. But like you said, the, I think I think the two numbers that I look at the most, at least as far as general overall readiness or health, are my resting heart rate overnight and my HRV. And what I noticed is that as I started to exercise more, and I do a lot of very intense exercise because I went from no real exercise at all, wasn't athletic, and decided ah, I'm going to train for American Ninja Warrior. So what I noticed was that over time, my resting heart rate has gone down considerably. And I always know if I've either overtrained or I'm sick or there's something wrong, if my resting heart rate didn't drop to a certain number, I'm like, Ooh, something's going on. So I can't always intuit that, oh, you know what? My resting heart rate must have been high, but I can use that as data that I feel is fairly accurate to tell me whether or not am I actually really rested or should I, you know, so like one of the, a couple of the things I've learned is that number one, my sleep is very adversely affected by late night exercise. And when you train with a bunch of 25 year olds that all have <laughs> massive ADD and are all night owls, they're like, hey, let's go training at like 10 o'clock at night. Um, and I don't do it a lot, but I've done it a couple of times and it just completely 
it destroys me. Like I'm just getting too old for this, but I have the ring to back it up. So it's not just my intuition. The ring was like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And I also learned that when I eat too heavy, too close to bed, it just messes up everything. Yeah. Okay. So both of those things, these are awesome uses of the ring, by the way. So, um, a, you're getting that feedback that kind of maybe confirms your intuition, but lets you pay attention to it a little bit longer, but B you're seeing one of these really cool patterns that reflects your, uh, your ultradian rhythms and messing up your circadian rhythms. So when you eat close to bed, as well as when you exercise, uh, close to bed, um, that's giving you, uh, either a big bolus of, of cortisol, uh, alertness hormone preventing you from going to sleep, probably keeping your heart rate up over the first half of the night and then kind of falling off a cliff as you go down. And then, uh, for separate reasons, when you eat a big bolus of food, you have to digest that food and you got to digest it when you went to sleep. And that means that, um, instead of having these nice 90 minute cycles of about the same amplitude throughout the night, your body's getting a, a massive wave of blood glucose, um, you know, driving up your trigs, like driving up your, your lactate. Um, and that's also going to keep your heart rate up uh, make you have a, a harder time falling into deep sleep and kind of set the rest of the night up for, for not so good. But there's one more thing you mentioned, which was like keeping the the data gap free when you can. And although it does kind of speak to like our OCD and maybe that's not great. Um, it is really valuable, I think in the long term because I don't know how long you've, um, you've had different wearables, but sometimes you go back and you look at two years ago, um, and you can say either, well, like I'm, I'm demonstrably fitter than I was then. And I'm, I'm sleeping better. And I, I believe my sense of improvement, or you say, man, it looks like I'm having a really hard year this year. It's like, I should really think about that because things were better a couple of years ago. And I think those are the kinds of senses that, um, you know, unless you're a, a really chronic journaler or you get blood work crazy often, you would just, you know, maybe only have vaguely in your head of like, oh yeah, this was a hard year. That was an easier year. But when you can, um, when you can see it in the data, I think, um, at least hopefully it can allow a person to like face that reality a little bit sooner and say, oh, wow, if this is a bad thing, I really want to make a change. Yeah. And I think it ultimately brings up this idea that it really isn't about the data for any given day. It's all about trends and patterns. So I'm always thinking to myself, not that I eat perfectly today. It's how have I been eating over the last month? Like, is the trend, am I getting better? Or is the trend that I've gotten worse as opposed to, oh, I had this one bad meal or I had this one bad night of sleep. How am I feeling and sleeping and eating and moving in a general trend versus this one little snapshot in time? I'm so glad you said that because um, it makes me think of there's this uh, CGM company called levels basically takes continuous glucose data and, and makes it available to people who, who don't have diabetes. Um, but I really feel like this, this company, and I, I love them. I've gotten to do some work with them that, that they should be called patterns instead, because mm. what you're really, yeah, the, the level of your glucose matters. If it's, if it's way high, you know, you need to pay attention. If it's way low, it's probably a sensor error, but may, but maybe you should eat a snack. But, um, but what you're really paying attention to when you use a continuous glucose monitor is the pattern of, um, how high am I spiking, um, when I ate a meal compared to my last meal, how long is that spike taking? Um, and you're responding directly to this, to this changing pattern by say, going and taking a walk to prevent your spike from getting too high. Um, and those kinds of patterns, whether they're short, like the ones I described, like little ultradian meals within the day, or whether they're looking at your long-term metabolic or, or sleep trends. Um, yeah, I think that's the, that's the main thing that you can get out of wearables. 
Well, speaking of patterns, there's one other area that I want to dig into a little bit more. And my guess is you spent entire semesters, if not years, studying this one concept. And there are people that probably dedicate their entire life to it. And I'm going to ask you to summarize it in about three minutes. But it's this idea that we're not just awake or we're not just asleep. While we are asleep, we have ultradian rhythms. And whenever somebody gets an aura ring on my recommendation, they always ask me the same thing two weeks later. So what is REM sleep and deep sleep and light sleep and how many hours am I supposed to get every night? How in the world do you answer that succinctly? Because it's so complex. I would say don't worry so much about the exact number of hours of each one of these things um, you get per night because you can't tune them independently. I'd say focus instead on something a little bit easier, which is to try to get a solid, uh, long window of sleep at about the same time each day in a relatively distraction-free environment. And then these things will probably take care of themselves. Um, so yes, we, we want to have an adequate amount of deep sleep. We want to have an adequate amount of REM sleep. Um, and we know that deep sleep tends to happen a little bit proportionally more towards the beginning of the night, the opposite for REM. But the fact is that, uh, sleep comes in, in cycles, like you said, where you transition through these different stages. And so you can't just conk out and say, I missed REM sleep last night. I'm going to only sleep REM sleep and try really hard now. Um, it's, it's more productive to say, I want to focus on getting a good quality night of sleep, knowing then that I will be um, allowing these cycles to progress through all these stages in the way that they're supposed to, and they'll sort out for themselves what I what I needed. So I, that's probably a little bit in the realm of grandma's advice, but I would tell people, <laughs> um, worry more about the whole night of sleep. Don't worry so much about each one of these components. Um, but you know, maybe if you do want to tune your REM sleep, let yourself sleep in a little bit later in the day. If you want to get more deep sleep, help you get yourself to bed a little bit earlier. All right. So for all those that want to go with grandma's advice, nailed it. Now you're going to have those annoying questioners like me that still want to go deeper. So if I've never heard of these concepts before, what are these different types of sleep and why do I even need to care? Yeah. So, um, people often, and this isn't, uh, this is completely accurate, but it's like a decent analogy. Talk about deep sleep as sleep for the body. And they talk about REM sleep as sleep for the brain. Um, in fact, both are for both. Um, but, but it's a decent breakdown. So, um, the reason that you, I think if you're a creative person, like one of the most motivating reasons to, to get sleep, uh, is to allow yourself to do that, um, cognitive taking out the trash, like we talked about early in the podcast, but also to, um, um, consolidate things that you were thinking about um, and consolidate new learnings. So there are different parts of, um, for instance, during slow wave sleep, you have these events called sharp wave ripples. Um, they're, they're really cool. They're little fast spiky um, events during which your brain actually seems to be replaying things that it experienced during the day in order, even going so far as to like release little bits of blood sugar when like remembering going through an activity. And it's, um, it's an analogous to, to, you know, being a musician, practicing playing a passage over and over again, or, or practicing drawing the same shape over and over again. Um, so when you're when you're in deep sleep and allowing your brain to get through many cycles of these sharp wave ripples, um, it's literally giving it practice to actively learn and, and remember something that it went through during the day. And then during REM sleep, we always hear about this as something where we're more likely to experience and remember. Um, dreams, but um, it's also a place where a lot of learning takes place and, and consolidation of memory. So um, 
this is, I, I think, super important for, for our brains. And then as far as a deep sleep in the body, we're also doing that cleaning out the trash um, in terms of our, our muscles and our digestive system and really all of our tissues we're going through and doing repair processes um, as opposed to um, trying to take in new inputs and, um, and use those body parts to do their functions and, and build up metabolic waste. So uh, I think when we wake up in the morning that we see that we're looking a little bit haggard or puffy or, or, uh, and then we get, you know, maybe nine hours of sleep on a very lucky night. And we feel like we looked five years or 10 years younger. I don't know if that, that's possible 10, but anyways, at least a few, um, part of the reason for that is because we literally let those cleanup crews go all around our body and, um, and repair our tissues during the night. So I was a little bit longer than three minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, I wasn't timing you. Don't worry about it. But that, that was exactly what I was looking for. Not too deep down the rabbit hole, but just enough to make me interested and want to go a little bit deeper if I want to start looking into the nuances, all of which is great. Um, so I assumed until a certain point that once I got to, I've got my aura ring, I've got all this data, I've got all these trackers, this is the best that I can do, right? So I have a, a member of my team wrote an article recently where they referenced me and they called me sleep's number one hype man using her words, not mine. Cause I had been talking about sleep from the rooftops for years and years and years, but just because I talk about it and promote it and how important it is, it doesn't mean I've totally got it figured out. So I've got the aura ring. I've been looking at the data. I've been reading the books. I've been doing the podcast. I've done all the genetic research. Sleep still eludes me. And I didn't know until literally scheduling this podcast, there was something called a sleep coach. So this is your time for shameless self-promotion to explain to me what a sleep coach is because you are talking to a potential client. Okay, cool. So um, I guess first full disclosure, I am not a sleep coach. I'm a, I'm a researcher, but I work with a lot of really talented sleep coaches at, at Crescent. So Crescent is this service that um, I love and, and I'm doing some research with them and helping build some new features. And basically they take all the wearable data where it whether it's from your aura ring or a whoop or a Garmin um, in the future, continuous glucose and a, and a bunch of other things. Um, and then they pair you up with a person who is probably an ex fitness trainer, yoga instructor, nutritionist, who's decided to go back and get a bunch of extra education and training in sleep physiology in particular, um, who, I mean, it's kind of like having a therapist for your sleep. It's someone who goes in, looks at you, looks at your data, has, um, you know, a, a, you know, empathetic and intelligent conversations with you and helps you identify where are potential uh, places for improvement in your sleep? What are some specific interventions that you can try? Helps you through them, helps you um, A, keep track of how you're feeling differently and pay more attention there, but but B, looks at your data and helps you interpret, was this really having the intended effect and, and what can you do next? Um, so I I think they're, they're quite cool and, and very competent, um, both in terms of knowing the science and in having that human touch that we don't normally get when we, you know, get a score from our wearable that may or may not match our experience, um, and may or may not be accurate. Um, so that, that, that's Crescent in a nutshell. And I guess the other thing that I would say about them is when you talked about, um, mapping your energy throughout the day, uh, I, 
got pretty excited when you said that, because um, that's like one thing that we've been working on building are, are ways for people to more easily track how they're feeling throughout the day subjectively, as well as um, see based on research and based on that individual's past experiences, how um, an intervention is going to impact that energy curve for the rest of the day. So if you think about, um, if you were to draw a picture of how you would feel throughout the day, maybe plates two or three mountain peaks and um, and two or three different valleys uh, working on uh, building interfaces that let you see when those are and how, you know, a cup of coffee is going to maybe give you a, a spike of energy now, tank you later and shift you a little bit later in a way that's a little more intuitive. Yeah, well, if you're looking for a hamster and you want to put the hamster in the maze right here, hand up, because um, I've tried a couple of other apps that were in beta that were trying to map all trading rhythms. They were very clunky. They didn't work well. Um, but essentially, I just want to wear a ring. And I want it to tell me what my Altradian rhythms are so I don't have to do all the work because you, you want to have a challenge. Try getting a creative person with ADD to manually map and journal their energy or their thoughts throughout the day consistently. There's a challenge for you. Yeah, um, but this is something that I really would love is to go to that next level, both with Altradian rhythms. Um, I'm very, very interested in uh, once we're, we go kind of offline, I'm going to ask you very politely if you'll connect me with somebody at levels because I've been very interested in continuous glucose monitoring and yeah. would love to bring that idea to the show and just learn more about it myself. Um, but also just really kind of emphasizing the importance of, I love how you put it, a therapist for your sleep. Because I've used the term, I'm a therapist for your creative career. And you say therapist for sleep, and it just makes total sense. Because it took me years to figure out what is it that I'm actually doing? I'm not, I'm kind of a career coach, but not really, because there's a lot of emotional stuff and mindset stuff. But therapist for a creative career makes sense. And a therapist for sleep, that totally clicked. So I'm, uh, I'm very much looking into if that's something that would make sense for me, uh, as long as I have the, the bandwidth and the time commitment. Because I've prioritized sleep, and I've done all the things but I feel like I'm still not getting the results and I need that outside perspective. Cool. I think it would be really neat to learn from you as well, especially, um, I mean, with your background in ultradian rhythms. And I think you hit the nail on the head with this idea of, um, you know, it would be awesome if we could get people to like click several times a day and track how they're feeling, but like almost no one is going to do that. And the challenge for, um, you know, what makes it hard to do that using the data is that most companies will not share their time series data all day long. Aura is one of them. They collect your temperature every single minute and can make the world's best ultradian rhythm tracker, but they're not going to share that information with anyone outside the company and they're not going to build it into their product, or at least they are yet. Um, Garmin might be able to do it with their heart rate. They have a, a nice continuous heart rate trace, um, but I don't believe they put that on their API. And there's a lot of um, kind of IP related uh, like constraints that these companies have around wanting to share their time series data. But I think that's really the most valuable thing that they could provide um, is that all day long information to people. And that's what you could really use to make like the smartest ultradian rhythm tracker ever. Um, you can start with activity because no one cares about sharing your step data. And it's a pretty good reflection of your ultradian rhythms. Um, but, you know, that would be the next level. Well, if you're looking for that next level hamster, I'm the one because I've always wanted a way to properly track my ultradian rhythm and have a map so I can more accurately plan out my day and my week. I've been looking everywhere for it, just have not found the tool that I like yet. So I'm, I'm all about it. Cool. Well, if you're up for trying out one that, uh, you know, is in beta and is being actively revised, um, definitely come try it. And I think the combination of, you know, either that next device that 
allows access to 24-hour heart rate and temperature or the combination of activity and glucose for now um, can make it pretty good. Awesome. Well, I'm all about it. And uh, because we've been speaking so much about time and efficiency, I want to be very respective of your time. And we've come to the, the point at which uh, we are supposed to be finished. But I want to leave with one last final quick thing. Yeah. If I'm coming to you as a totally burned out, sleep deprived, creative parent, otherwise, and I just have no idea how to get a hold on this, what's the smallest thing that I start with? I would say it's not a small thing, but uh, be nice to yourself first. Know that you're probably doing more than um, most of the humans in history have, have had to deal with at the same time and you're trying to push yourself really hard. And then on top of that, probably have a, a conversation if you live with someone else uh, or have a family, have a conversation with them about the issue and like acknowledge that sleep is something that you want to work on and that you feel like it needs to be a priority. Because often if we're, we're so tired, we know it's a thing, but we're really trying to push it out of our minds. Telling someone else about it can be like the first step towards saying, okay, you know, maybe what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to go to bed an hour earlier every night this week, even if it messes up the rest of our routine. So yeah, those are the, hopefully that would, would help at least somebody uh, feel a little bit less stressed and talk to someone about it. Well, I know that we are cut from the same cloth because somebody that spent years tracking data and wearables and everything else, the one piece of advice you give to somebody is be nice to yourself. I love it. Absolutely love it. Could not say it better myself. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for being on the show with me today. Um, you actually came through to me through recommendation, kind of a sort of cold submission. And I am ruthless when it comes to people that want to be on this podcast. A lot of people will take anybody that sends them an email. I probably get five emails a day from people that want to be in the podcast that have their pitch. Nope, nope, nope. Delete, 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 delete. And then yours came along and I was like, oh, let's look into it. This seems like it could be a good fit. I can't even imagine if for some reason I'd not had you on the show because dear lord i love this conversation i want to stay in touch with you i want to learn more about this stuff and i'm very appreciative of you sharing your knowledge and your expertise here today so thank you wow thank you so much i mean i'm i'm really happy to be here i'm like quite new to doing podcasts and i certainly i mean i knew you were um like a, a creative professional. And I, I knew you helped people with, with sleep and time management, but I had no idea that you had this whole um, ultradian rhythms connection and that you had like personally figured out so much of the, the background science. Figuring out. Own. I haven't figured anything <laughs> out yet. I have figured nothing out, but oh, I'm actively figuring out a lot of things. Oh, I think so. you have to give yourself more credit than that. You figured out a lot of things and you have plenty more to figure out. Like everybody. True. That, that's, um, a, that's a good way to put it. I like that. Um, so if anybody wants to find you or find Crescent or anything else, if they're totally excited, about all this stuff, um, where's the first place I should send them? So I'd say if you want to find Crescent, they have a website, uh, crescent.co. Uh, we also have uh, Crescent on, on Twitter. Me personally, my website's azuregrant.com. I have an Instagram called Scoop Me Science that's mostly uh, rhythms and metabolism and hormones. And really cool cartoons. drawings, by the way. So really <laughs> good drawings and cartoons of which I understand you draw yourself. Ah, uh, yeah, it's just for just for fun. I just started it. But um, but you can find me there. Uh, feel free to get in touch. Um, I love talking about this stuff. And, and it makes me really happy to learn how many people like outside the general scientific community are getting really interested in actually using this information. So yeah, thank you again. It's it really nice to meet you and stay in touch. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Azure Grant. If you'd like to access the original show notes, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 189. And thank you for listening to all five parts of this holiday series with some of the world's foremost experts who can help you stay healthy 
happy and sane through the holiday season. Have a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season yourself. And I will see you with brand new episodes the first week of January 2024. Until then, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.